welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and for those of you who may have just joined us, uh, my guest uh, this week is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything. Mark has been joining me once a month, um, and it's great to have him on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Uh, Always a pleasure. Okay, uh, it's great to have you. Uh, now, I want to keep my try to keep my questions brief uh, today. The first is about the situation in Ukraine in terms of the fighting uh, more than three months after Russia launched its large-scale invasion. Actually, I think Friday will be the 100th day uh, of, of this part of the war. In other words, the 100th day since, since the new invasion on February 24th. Um, Following some major failures and setbacks, um, Russia seems to be making some progress in the Donbass, the provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, which is the chunk of eastern Ukraine where the war actually started in 2014. Officially, uh, this region is is now the focus of the Russian offensive, and um, Russian forces have made some gains lately. Uh, There was heavy fighting this weekend, and there's heavy fighting today uh, as they try to take the cities of Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, uh, which the Associated Press described as the last major areas under Ukrainian control in the Luhansk province. Mark, uh, what seems to be happening on the battlefield, um, and, and what are the implications of these recent developments in the longer term? Yes, I mean, we have to be quite careful about this, because on the one hand, the Russian offensive does look as if it certainly reached and just beginning to nibble into Severodonetsk, though this, it's one thing to reach a city, it's quite another to take it. Uh, I mean, just ask the defenders of Mariupol. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting this is going to be the same kind of order of conflict, but nonetheless, we shouldn't sort of write Severodonetsk off. And I think the main thing is, I'm struck by the pendulum swing of the kind of popular and political assessments of what's going on. After all, it's not that long ago when we were being told that, ah, we're at the stage where the Ukrainians may well actually win a military victory and drive the Russians out of the Donbass or back to the pre-invasion borders or, or similar. Now suddenly we're hearing tales of, oh no, now it looks as if the Russians are about to win and not just in the Donbass, but then they will continue to move on. Look, wars are inevitably subject to ebbs and flows. And in this case, what the Russians have done is, in time-honoured fashion, they have concentrated, they have brought mass to bear. And they have launched this this offensive, which is making progress. Slow, buzzword at the moment, incremental progress. We're talking often no more than a mile or two in a day. But the point is, they can only do that, first of all, by moving resources away from other axes of advance which actually not just sort of stops them from moving further, but also opens up prospects for Ukrainian counterattacks, and also by using up resources that are finite. There will come a point, and it's probably coming sooner rather than later, at which point this particular Russian offensive will reach what in military jargon is called culmination, 
which the rest of us would probably call exhaustion. And there is no real sign that the Russians have got the men, the material and the morale to launch another offensive for months. Now, things might change if Putin does decide for some kind of partial mobilization. But even then, I mean, that would actually would raise extra troops, but fairly indifferent ones. But also it would take two to three months for them actually to be making an impact on the field. So I think for all these reasons, you know, we need to be cautious. Yes, of course, the Russian military is going to make advances, not least because it's not actually the sort of keystone cops of an army that some people have been suggesting. They started very much wrong footed, not least by Putin's extraordinarily muddle headed initial strategy and also by the Ukrainians, both determination and exceedingly capable tactics that they adopted. I mean, they've been thinking for eight years on quite how they were going to defeat the Russians, and they, they, they did a rather good job of it. But for all that, the Russians do have a certain amount of resources, they do have certain strengths, and now that the war is much more of a war of slow grinding away at the other, of attrition, and also an artillery war, which is where the Russians do have you know, particular strengths, of course, they're, they're going to make advances. They might well take all of Luhansk region, and then they'll try and dig in. I think this is the thing. If we, do, if we try and look forward, who knows quite what the political leadership in Moscow think? There was an interesting uh, Medusa article recently saying that there's a new mood of triumphalism, and people thinking and talking about a renewed offensive against Kiev. If so, I can only assume that these are civilians, not people in uniform, because there, there is no way that the Russians, as I say, have the capacity to continue a major offensive in, in the Donbass, let alone open up a new one. And I suspect, therefore, that what the generals are essentially trying to do is to establish defensible battle lines where they can dig in and let the Ukrainians come at them for a change. The Ukrainians have had the advantage of being the defenders, and oh, although we shouldn't put too much faith in simple arithmetic, there's a general assumption that you need at least a three to one local advantage in your forces to be able to carry the offence. Well, in a way, from the Russian perspective is fine. Let the, let the Ukrainians try and concentrate, not least because then we will hammer them with our artillery. So I think this is it. it, it it's really about reaching something that is politically acceptable may not be the triumph Putin wants, but nonetheless, you know, demonstrates some, some degree of success and perhaps more to the point, militarily defensible, because sooner the Russians will basically be stopping and then they have to defend what they've bitten off. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, you, you point out, and indeed, I think there was a, a kind of a major switch uh, uh, almost boomeranging of, of the things that were being said about the progress of the war. And, you know, as you, as you, as you said, a few weeks ago, you know, it was just sort of getting into people's consciousness that, okay, Ukraine can actually win this war. And that was something that everyone was told before the invasion, you know, was, was, was impossible essentially. Um, but now, uh, you know, there, there's talk and there's evidence of, of Russian gains. Um, and you also mentioned kind of the, some of the reasons for the initial uh, very serious setbacks, uh, you know, Putin's 
apparent belief that that uh, he would essentially bring bring Ukraine and the government to its knees within a few, within a few days. Um, you're also mentioning uh, the the idea that uh, there is not much more, not much further, it seems, that uh, the Russian forces can go. And, and I'm just wondering, maybe, maybe you already said this or maybe it's off base on my part, but um, it sounds like the goal to me for Russia now is to take as much of the Donbass as it can and, and possibly also areas a little bit outside and towards Kharkiv, and also to keep and, and possibly gain more territory along the, the so-called land bridge in the south, uh, southwest of the Donbass, um, uh, heading toward uh, the Crimean Peninsula. Does that sound like what, you know, given, given the capabilities now, does that sound like what's, what Russia is aiming for at, at the moment? Yes, in some ways, this is a race against time. Um, how much can they get before they have to basically stop, before they, they run out of, of, of momentum and, and capacity to continue? And so, yes, it, it's going to be, I mean, I think at the moment, clearly the focus is on, on Lugansk, um, and they will try and, and take that. And look, if they have the opportunity to push forward in um, Donetsk, fine. Likewise, when it comes to the land bridge, Again, I think a lot of this is actually, well, it's opportunistic, but it's also about trying to make sure that they have a defensible front line. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, in a way, it's tidying up, for want of a better word, rather than anyone is thinking sort of grandiose thoughts about going after major cities. You know, we still see people thinking about, oh, well, what about Odessa and so forth? Now, again, I mean, unless there's going to be some truly game-changing political development, which would be, for example, I don't know if, and it's highly unlikely, Belarus enters the war on the side of the Russians, or that Putin does indeed declare uh, a mobilization. Well, unless either of those happen, there just aren't the forces available for anything more than this. So, yes, I think this, this is what we're talking about. And I think going back to the earlier point about expectations, I mean, here I will channel my own inner curmudgeon. And I think this is the trouble. In, in the modern world, we, we have become, become accustomed to things happening quickly. And a lot of things do happen incredibly quickly. But you know, military campaigns cannot be binge watched on Netflix. Um, you know, it always takes time. And I think this is it. And, and, and the constant need for politicians to have new sound bites, for journalists to have new articles to write, mean that people are constantly looking for grander meaning in the often minor ebb and flow of, of the battle lines. And the reason I stress this is because we shouldn't assume that we're the only ones who are affected by that. It's clear that there are people in Moscow who are likewise desperate for good news or alternatively desperate for potential bad news um, for, for different reasons. And, and again, are, are trying to read way too much into what's happening. And, you know, ever since really, I think it was, it was Putin's Victory Day speech of the 9th of May in which he signaled the reframing of this war, that it was not about Russia seeking to denazify, quote unquote, demilitarize uh, Ukraine, and obviously protect the ethnic Russians and Russian speakers of the Donbass from, from the evil genocide that will be practiced upon them. No, this was actually a war with the West, a war with NATO, 
in which Ukraine was just the proxy, Ukraine was the battlefield. And in part, that is a way of excusing defeat or the sort of failures so far. It's not that we lost against the Ukrainians. We lost because of NATO's intervention. Secondly, it's a way of signaling this is a long-term operation. Thirdly, it's also about making it much more existential. Um, it, it's hard to really suggest that Ukraine poses any kind of military threat to Russia. However, if Ukraine is merely the point of the spear, then you can say that this is a truly existential struggle, and you also use that as an excuse to further crack down on any signs of any kind of resistance. You make it a, uh, a point where you're basically demanding people to make a choice, a stark choice in which there is no middle ground. You are either a patriot or you are a traitor. And you know, these are all deeply uncomfortable for a lot of people, never mind outside, but even inside the political system. I mean, it, it is clear the extent to which um, there is a, a distinct lack of enthusiasm on any other than any other than the sort of well-paid toxic propagandists for for this war. And I think in in that circumstance, again, there are people who want the war to be over quickly, which means that they will magnify assumptions about victory and think, ah, oh, you know, next next stop Kiev, and then we can secure a peace deal or whatever. Or who want the war over quickly and therefore are hoping that reversals on the battlefield will somehow force Putin to step away from, from the brink. Both of them are equally, in my opinion, at least um, self-deluding, but nonetheless, I think they're really still quite um, strong opinion bodies, shall we say, that people are very, very quietly expressing. Okay, I just wanted to before moving on to the second question, which is related to what you've been saying now, I just wanted to ask um, kind of about the, the view in the West. And if, if uh, Russia does at some point fairly soon or, or not very soon kind of come to an end, you know, take a certain amount of territory, control a certain amount of territory and say, OK, we're stopping now. Let's have peace. Um, how important is kind of the West's reaction to that going to be? Because, you know, there, um, there are obviously a range of opinions on, you know, how important it is uh, to, to secure some kind of a peace deal and, and whether that's acceptable um, if Russia is controlling portions of Ukraine uh, above and beyond Crimea. I mean, there is an orthodoxy at the moment that says, you know, the war ends when the Ukrainians say it ends. In other words, that they right. are the ones who determine. Now, that's a good political line, and I fully understand it. But I think realistically, of course, each nation is also thinking about their own interests. And there are clearly very different perspectives across the West about how far in some ways they, they feel this war has to go. You know, is this something that... Uh, Frankly, as long as the Russians are pushed back to the pre-invasion borders, so they still have the uh, quote-unquote people's republics plus Crimea, that would be acceptable. Is this that they have to be driven out of the Donbass? Is that they also have to be driven out of Crimea, which is a whole other world of, of, of risk? Or is it, as some people are willing to say off the record, um, actually that basically this, this continues so long as Putin is in the Kremlin? 
So I think in, in, in that context, at the moment, the issue is precisely that because we are nowhere near, let's be perfectly honest, and into this war, no one has really had to grasp the nettle and consider that. And that includes the Ukrainians. I mean, I think you know, Zelensky has made it clear that as, as far as he's concerned, that you know, the real goal would be precisely the expulsion of Russians from all Ukrainian territory, which naturally would, would include Crimea. But that the minimal basis for some kind of serious peace process would be a return to the pre-invasion borders. Well, that's that, that's fine. Um, but at the moment, obviously, that's nowhere near anything that the Russians would be willing to accept. You know, at present, the two sides are so far apart, not least because of Bucha and Mariupol. Bucha, the massacres are there, but in some ways made it very hard, understandably and rightly, for the Ukrainians to sit down with the Russians. And Mariupol, because that's clearly one of the cities that the Russians would want to maintain control over. They want to keep, if they can, their land bridge to Crimea. And how after the extraordinary and heroic defense of the city could someone like Zelensky then say that was amazing but as a sort of final sacrifice for the motherland we have to give you to give you to the Russians you know, these are things that I don't think Zelensky even if he wanted to politically could actually give as part of a peace deal so anyway there is no peace process at the moment the two sides are too far apart and I suspect that one or both of them are going to have to suffer much more before they're willing to make the kind of concessions that make those peace talks um, viable. And when that happens, obviously a degree of sanctions relief will the Russians, I'm sure, are going to demand, have to be part of that. Not all of it, of course, but some. And again, that's when we start to get the potential issues, um, because you know, having had this extraordinary degree and unity of sanctions war, well, it's basically economic war, let's call it what it is, being waged against Russia. Um, once we start to have the sort of potential negotiations about what might be lifted, there we have all kinds of scope for divisions and fractions within the West emerging. So I think at the moment, this is just because it's still a conceptual sort of thing on, 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 the, on the horizon. No one's really willing to start discussing it for the very reason that as soon as they do, they are going to um, increase divisions and that no one wants to undermine the current unity. But it'll happen at some point that these conversations have to be had. And there's a, a final point I'd make. You know, there is a whole debate as to whether it's best to have what's called strategic ambiguity, which in other words mean we, we won't make a decision until the moment, or whether we should be discussing these things in advance. At present, the, you know, the, the decisions is with strategic ambiguity. There are some issues, like, for example, whether it will be acceptable for there to be a deal which, you know, which includes the possibility of Russia retaining Crimea, if, for example, a genuine, fair and internationally monitored uh, referendum could be held there. Well, it, it might be worth having those discussions ahead of time, but I said, at present, there's no appetite for that. Yeah, absolutely. Those are very tough, uh, tough questions. Uh, one thing you you mentioned uh, the the idea that is this does this continue um, what, as long as Putin's in power, and that kind of leads us uh, to the second question that I wanted to ask, or maybe it's the fourth or fifth question now. But um, 
It's about speculation, the speculation about Putin's health and also about the possibility that he could be removed from power, essentially, in a coup. Um, obviously, this kind of speculation occurred before Putin launched uh, the new invasion of Ukraine in February. Uh, but for various reasons, it seems to have increased uh, since then. Sometimes rumors or reports encompass both of these ideas, at once predicting Putin's political and physical demise. Um, there was one, uh, I, you know, I don't want to lend any credence to this, but there were reports in the British tabloids over the weekend, you know, saying Putin may already uh be dead, and if he were, uh, the people around him would keep that a secret for as long as they could. Now, again, I don't want to. I'm bringing that up just kind of as a as a way to uh, to say that that uh, this this is the kind of speculation that's going on, and this is what some people are talking about. Um, and with with Ukraine and Russia in the global spotlight, there seems to be no shortage of people professing to be experts on one or the other topic, uh, or both. That, that is the health issue and the, uh, the fragility or strength of Putin's uh, grip on power. Uh, on the issue of uh, Putin's health, as you put it in a recent article in The Spectator, Mark, suddenly we are all diagnosticians. But the fact is, while, while you may not be a medical doctor, I'm certainly not, you are an expert on Russia's security services and the other groups and factions and camps surrounding Putin. You've been studying them for years. So I'd be interested in your expertise there and your thoughts essentially about these two issues, Putin's health and the strength and fragility of his rule, and also essentially how, they've been, how they have affected and may further affect the course of this bloody and destructive war he has needlessly unleashed. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a guy who exactly I've been following since well, before he was president. And on a purely uh, sort of lay opinion, there does seem to be something wrong with him. I mean, whether we're talking about the fact that this man who you know, always prided himself on his official persona of being absolutely in control, in control of his surroundings, in control of his body, in control of his emotions. You know, he was the, the cold, cool, collected chief executive figure. And yet now we see these sort of strange twitches of the hand and the leg. We see him sitting there with a sort of blanket over his knees when nonagenarian veterans at Victory Day um, seem to be fine. We see these strange outbursts of, of anger and venom, whether it's directed against the Ukrainians or even whether it's directed against uh, you know, his own foreign intelligence chief, Narishkin. One way or the other, there seems to be something there. Now, some saying Parkinson's, some saying various cancers or whatever. I have no idea. Um, and I don't get the sense that either from people in the West who follow this with more professional uh, capacity than I do, or indeed from, from Russian discourse, there's any real sense that this is something that's imminent, that it's imminently going to lead to death or incapacitation or anything like that. And some, I think, of the Western sort of discussion of this really is wishful thinking. It's that sense that this will be the deus ex machina that gets us all off the hook. That means we don't have to worry about you know, can we maintain the political will to continue to support Ukraine, even if we're in the middle of winter and we have power cuts 
and even if it's costing us billions upon billions and so forth. So, you know, I, th I, think, I think we have to appreciate the fact that this is doing, I think, several things. One, it may well be affecting Putin's timeline, Putin's sense of how long he's got. Um, Putin's you know, position has always been, after all, that he's going to outlast his democratic adversaries. They have elections, and in due course, they're going to lose elections, or they have term limits that actually mean something, and they can't just constitutionally revise them. So he can outlast them. He can outlast the will of a, of a collective West that, again, he has regarded as always being lacking. I think his sense has been that will is the Russian political system's secret advantage. That, you know, when it comes down to it, the West speaks a lot, is sanctimonious, is hypocritical, but is ultimately weak and is easily distracted by other things. Well, that's fine if you really do feel that your, your timeline stretches as long as you want. Now, although constitutionally he can stay in power until he, he's in his 80s, I suspect it's less likely that he's thinking in those terms. So that might, I mean, that might even help explain why he actually did launch his invasion when he did. So that's the first thing. It affects his timeline, but we shouldn't, that means it doesn't mean that he thinks he needs to win some kind of a victory in two months or whatever. But maybe it means that he needs to have a victory before the end of next year or something. Secondly, it absolutely affects his position because the interesting thing is that Putin's health has always been one of these extraordinary taboo issues. I mean, we've known, for example, for a long time that he has recurring back issues. And from time to time, he would disappear from view for a couple of weeks. And almost certainly that was precisely because of, of his back issues. And there'd be all kinds of feverish speculation. And then he'd reappear. and Nothing was ever really said about this. Well, of course, now if it's something rather more serious, but it's not being addressed publicly, well, inevitably, like, you know, like, like nature, gossip abhors a vacuum. And you get all this kind of rumour and speculation, not just in the West, but also in Russia. And I think over time, this does become destabilising, because it's interesting that already we're, we're beginning to see a resurgence of the quiet, um, no-name source-given discussions and speculation about who would be next, who would be the next president. Which, remember, this was sufficiently problematic way back before the constitutional changes that probably one of the key reasons why Putin did bring these changes and with it the extension in his own term limits was precisely to damp down all this unwelcome speculation. So, you know, obviously once upon a time, Shoigu would have been the front runner. Now his star is rather tarnished. So I think it's always a mistake to, to rule out that particular wily operator. But we've also got names like, I mean, even Sergei Kirienko, the sort of political technologist in chief, the deputy head of the presidential administration um, being discussed. And, and any of those discussions, well, on one level, they mean nothing because this is talking about a vacancy that doesn't exist. On another, the fact people are much more people in power are much more directly speculating about a future without Putin inevitably weakens Putin himself. So, you know, th this is a factor, but we shouldn't overplay it. Of course, where that kind of Venn diagram of illness and coup coincide, overlap, is precisely what happens if he experiences something that really is seriously debilitating and that's going to last some time. Now, there is a, a constitutional process for what happens in this case, which is that actually if, if it's invoked, 
then the Prime Minister, Mishustin, steps in as interim president, and there have to be elections within three months. But that's a very kind of, um, that's a final process. That, that is essentially if, if the president is unable to do his job, full stop. Not if he's out of action for a month or, or, or two months. So we, we might have a situation in which there is resistance to invoking that because that actually ends his presidency in effect. And yet there is no one really governing in his stead. And that's the kind of thing that might lead us more towards some kind of forcible resolution of the government issue, which is the best euphemism I can think of, of a coup. But I think that this is a system which there's all kinds of things it does incredibly badly. One thing it does really rather well is protect itself. It is you know, well set up to actually prevent coups. You have you know, multiple armed forces, all of which watch each other. You have the constant scrutiny of multiple security services. It's worth noting, after all, that you know, although the FSB is the kind of main agency busy watching everyone else, the FSO, the Federal Protection Service, the sort of Putin's true Praetorians, well, they, they have uh, phone tapping capability. They have email tapping capability. And every day they provide Putin with a report of what's going on within the elite, which obviously includes the FSB and the other security services. So, you know, I think it would be very hard to have any one of these agencies, the military or whoever, being able to pull off a coup. You'd need to have some kind of a coalition. And that makes it really difficult to have those kind of conversations. It's often what's, what's called the, sort of the first mover problem. Who starts the conversations when you never know if your phone is being tapped, your emails are being read and your movements and your meetings are being monitored. And if you don't know, the person you're talking to might well be an, an informant for the security services of one particular brand or another. You know, who, who is going to dare doing that? So I think if anything like this is going to happen, it's not going to be until things have got a lot worse. And until there's some particular crisis that forces people to make a decision in the day to day, no matter how bad things get in a sort of slow, incremental way, the risk in doing anything will probably massive out, must massively outweigh, at least in people's minds, the risks in doing nothing, just sitting back and hoping things work out. But if you have um, you know, Putin is seriously incapacitated and there is, in effect, a vacuum of power, or a vacuum of power, perhaps it's someone like, and there were some suggestions that, that uh, Nikolai Patrushev, the Secretary of the Security Council, could fill, even though he has absolutely no constitutional mandate. You know, so the, that, that's the sort of thing. Or if there are mass protests because of you know, economic problems, which the security forces are unable or unwilling to, to quell. Or if Putin seems to be going off the rails and, I don't know, decides to that they, he needs to turn to nuclear weapons or similar, that's making everyone at, at risk. You know, something that actually forces people to make a decision. We're nowhere near that point yet, but it is not entirely inconceivable. All right, well, that's uh, fascinating. Um, and I, I guess uh, depressing, both on the, uh, in, in terms of, I mean, I, I guess it, it sounds like uh, both in terms of the war and the situation in in Russia, in the in the power structures in Russia, there's no kind of immediate uh, uh, hope or, or or 
visible chance for for some kind of a uh, a denouement or or a, or a big change in in the near future. Of course, that that could happen any time um, would be unexpected. But um, sounds like uh, things could potentially continue along this horrible way that they are. I mean, can, can I jump progressing, in? Progressing uh, for I mean, just, for a long time. I mean, I just say, yeah. I mean, my my view is on on balance. But just as in a way, militarily, we're heading towards some kind of a deadlock. So too politically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, even if there is some kind of that is agreed in, in Ukraine. Relations between Russia and the West are not going to return to the pre-invasion situation. You know, at best, we're going to have sort of like 1980s post-Afghan invasion Cold War relations. I mean, that is the best picture I can think of. But you were saying, you know, in, in effect, and here I, I may be totally mischaracterizing what you're thinking, but isn't it a shame there won't be a coup to topple Putin? Which I can un- understand. We should remember that particularly if it's that kind of forcible seizure of power, it wouldn't necessarily go the way that we in the West might like. Remember that you know, we, we are well aware of, shall I say, the liberal and technocratic criticisms of Putin, even from within his own system. But what we shouldn't forget is there is also a nationalist critique of Putin. There are also a lot of people within the security, within the military apparatus and so forth, who didn't really have a moral or political problem with the idea that Ukraine must be forced to recognize that it is part of Russia's sphere of influence. But they do have a problem with it being done so incompetently. They do have a problem with, as far as they're concerned, the amateurishness and the corruption that this regime has demonstrated and which has really been played out on the battlefield. And, you know, if you follow the writings of people like Strelkov, Igor Girkin, the uh, the man who, by his own admission, sort of pulled the trigger on on the war in the Donbass. Now, he himself is not that important, but he is an interesting bellwether, um, a a representative of this particular nationalist critique of Putin that is clearly increasingly strong within the security apparatus. So, you know, yes, a coup raises the possibility of a more rational, flexible, pragmatic government as possible. But we also could get, you might say, people who are as determined to assert Russia's great power status, but rather better at it than this 69-year-old ailing military amateur who is currently sitting in the Kremlin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, I, it's hard to know whether to, to wish things were more predictable or, or less predictable, as you say. Certainly not. Uh, certainly, um, what would happen in, in, in that event is uh, is really up for is 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 very unpredictable. Okay, uh, we're we're getting short on time, but I'd like to uh, take a few questions, um, if there are any. Now, I do see you had one question um, sent by direct message. Uh, this is about. Uh, the issue of genocide. Um, question is, I am concerned that only seven nation states have recognized Russia as committing genocide in Ukraine. Um, how important is it for states to recognize uh, these war crimes as genocide? And what do you recommend listeners do to help propel their countries? to pass legislation or resolutions recognizing genocide. So I'm not 
uh, kind of as a journalist, uh, I'm not going to rec uh, make any recommendations. Um, but um, Mark, do you have anything to uh, to say about that question? Well, you'll happily put me in the firing line. Um, look, I, <laughs> no, I, I have well, two problems in here. terms of you know, obviously genocide has been the issue of genocide has been discussed uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, is this or is it not? Is it on the way to being? So um, I guess just uh, if you could say anything about that. I mean, I think my issues are two things. One is genocide is a very high bar. Genocide is essentially, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a lawyer in this respect, but you know, it is actually the, the killing of a people just simply for the sake of who they are, which is not the same as a really ugly, brutal, unpleasant way of fighting a war and associated war crimes. So, I mean, in, in some ways, I think that, you know, people have to have to chew over whether it's genocide. I'm not convinced that in the middle of the war is really the time to actually decide that. And as I said, I mean, I think that for me, it seems pretty conclusive, but again, it has to be proven by lawyers, that war crimes absolutely have taken place and that these are war crimes which, if not ordered from above, were, have at least been retrospectively sanctioned by the fact that there have been there's been no attempt to to police and prosecute them. But war crimes and genocide are two very very different things. And I think that again, see, the trouble is that if one starts saying, "Oh well, we, we you know we need to call this genocide," and I totally understand the the sort of emotional desire to do that, but there's no way of getting around the fact that this is indeed going to be highly highly divisive, and. I, I don't see the advantage at the moment in the middle of the war. It, it's not actually going to change anything. What it does do is potentially open up room for, for those people who anyway would like to kind of break away from, from the sort of the mainstream Western perspective to actually sort of be able to say, well, you know, obviously we, you know, we, we deplore what the Russians are doing, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, we can't go along with this. And therefore this opens the kind of, Precisely the cracks that Russia is actually quite good at exploiting and, and leveraging open. So it's probably not the, well, I'm sure it's not the answer that the uh, listener would, would, would want to get from me, but that, that, that's, how, that's where I stand yeah. on this. That's an, that's an interesting point about, about, about opening up the cracks. And, and I just, I'm, I'm obviously not a lawyer. Um, uh, either, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to sort of answer the question, but I just, just one thing I'd mention is uh, the way that Putin had, uh, you know, and again, I, I don't really know how this affects the issue uh, in, in, a, in a legal way, but um, the way that Putin kind of set, set up the invasion uh, by repeatedly saying, you know, essentially saying that Ukraine didn't, didn't have the right, doesn't have the right to exist, you know, as a sovereign state or a fully sovereign state. You know, he's been saying that for years. Um, so it's just, I think that's one factor that is going to be looked at uh, when people just, when this is discussed. Okay, um, let's see if there are any other questions. I mean, I've, I've just received a direct message that I suspect is really I mean, well, it's sent to me. I imagine it's really relating to this, given that it came in during during this conversation. So, shall I throw that in? Unless there's someone who, amongst the listeners, who who is raising their hand or similar. 
Uh, why don't you go ahead, sure. Mark? Thanks. Well, this question is, you know, can Russia afford to lose this war, even partially, and specifically Putin himself? And my answer to that is no, but. No, it can't afford to lose the war, but, of course, it can define for itself what winning or losing means. And look, I, I mean, I think that even, frankly, if the Russians you know, bite off the Donbass and the Crimean Corridor and manage to hold it. That's something that they will declare or Putin will declare is a, you know, a grand triumph and all they ever wanted in the first place and so forth. But it's not going to stop the Ukrainians from continuing to fight. It's not going to stop, indeed, I should add, not just as you were on the front line, but I'm sure there's going to be continued guerrilla partisan resistance behind those lines. And likewise, it's not going to stop the really quite extraordinary economic and political war that the West is waging against Russia. So I think it's one thing that, you know, declaring victory is easy. Actually turning that in, into a victory may be rather harder. So, I mean, I think, I think the, you know, the Russians ultimately will, will try to avoid this becoming a matter of, of a defeat. It's a lot harder for Putin than, 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 than for Russia. I mean, I think this is why, you know, really... The absence of Putin from the political scene would, would make things a lot easier for those people in Russia who really want to bring this to an end, because they can metaphorically throw him under the metro and, and blame so much on him and so forth. And I imagine, frankly, that the West would be willing to go along with that to a degree, because the West would really like this war not to continue forever. Um, you know, so I think you know, Putin himself, he needs something that he can call a triumph. Even, if, even though it won't be, because obviously he's failed in his initial um, campaign objective, which was clearly to seize all or most of, of Ukraine. And final point, can Russia afford to lose this war? And the real question is, can Russia afford to fight this war? I think that you know, we, we really shouldn't underestimate the long-term impact of not just the way that the, the basically 20 years of military modernization has been chewed through in 20 days of actual fighting, but also the degree to which actually the Russian economy is going to contract dramatically and, ter and terribly um, you know, over the course of this year. And even if sanctions are then quickly lifted, it, it's not going to bounce back. It's, you know, the, the scars that are, are being left are scars that will take years or in some cases decades to, to heal. So, I mean, I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, some, I mean, some kind of peace will someday preserve, you know, uh, prevail, whether it's a peace through a treaty or through a sort of frozen conflict. Um, but it, you know, there's no way of getting around the fact that at best, what Russia will be doing is minimizing its defeat. Russia has lost. All right. Uh, on that note, I'm going to ask if there are any more questions. Uh, thanks for that one, Mark. Uh, very clear response. Um, uh, again, you can uh, request to ask a question by raising by hitting the button uh, to request to speak uh, if you'd like to ask a question or send a direct message. Okay. Um, all right. Well, uh, I, I'd like to wrap it up uh, in that case. Um, we're getting short on time, so uh, let's wrap it up. And Mark, uh, once again uh, this month, uh, thanks very much for joining me. 
Oh, my pleasure, always. Okay, and uh, I'll just remind uh, listeners, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus uh, at RFERL.